0: If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus. We're going through the Ten Commandments. We're in the Second Commandment, Exodus 24 to 6. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, indeed you are unchangeable unstoppable. That's really who you are. And Father, as we talk about your nature today, we ask that we would have a better understanding of who you are. That we would worship you, not some false image, not some mental picture, but fully how you're described, the full orbed picture of you in scripture. Guide us, we ask, amen. In the Izu Islands of Japan, a few years ago, they put a hundred decoys of albatrosses. As it turns out, the albatross population was declining, an endangered species So they put these decoys on that other albatrosses might come and that they might mate and multiply this particular species. Unfortunately, there was a five-year-old albatross named Deco who fell in love with a decoy. (laughs) And for the next couple years, he wouldn't let anyone near the decoy he would build nests around the decoy to woo the decoy. If any other albatross came near, he would turn fierce and remove that albatross. He was in love with the decoy. A scientist named Fumio said it became clear that he preferred the decoy to any live albatross. And we might say, what a dumb bird how pathetic and how sad, and yet, and yet I would submit that in the Christian world, some Christ followers are worshiping more of a decoy, an idol, a mental picture of God, rather than how God describes himself in 66 books. Perhaps you've heard this phrase. Maybe you've said this phrase. I like to think of God as. As soon as you hear that phrase, kind of arm yourself mentally and say, I'm about to be given an idolatrous mental image of God. Because you probably will be given just that. I like to be thinking of God as a God of love. And we have the whole love crowd. And God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of righteous wrath. And we've got to balance all these pictures. The love crowd tends to say, I like to think of God as a God of love. And by that, they mean God doesn't hold me accountable. Sin is not that big a deal. In fact, I'm not even sure sin is a real word. It's just kind of what people think. And we have this idolatrous view of God. Or there's another crowd. They're the New Testament crowd. They say, I like the God of the New Testament. He's kind of gentle and gracious. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's kind of wrathful. And we somehow think of God as a developing God He's kind of in a self-improvement state and he's gotten a lot better from the Old Testament where he was wrathful. In the New Testament, he's gracious. And we don't realize that God himself makes this statement. Maokai three 3.6, "'For I, the Lord, do not change. "'Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed.'" James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no shadow of changing. Hebrews 13.8 says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's no such thing as the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. We have this idea of of an evolving God, we call it process theology or open theism. And the idea is that God really doesn't know all things. And they use this to explain why there's sin in the world or why natural disasters happen. God surely would have stopped that natural disaster, but he didn't see it coming. He's kind of a developing God. Imagine if we still had the God in the Old Testament full of wrath, but we've got this God of love in the New Testament, so much better. I can't wait to see what he's like a thousand years from now. Maybe he'll improve even more. And we have this mental idolatry of who God is. Or individuals might say something like this God is my big buddy in the sky. He's not. He's your Lord. He's not your big buddy. In fact, to say God is my friend would include less than five people in all of Scripture. I know we have a great hymn about God being our friend, but you gotta know that that is exceptionally rare. If you are actually counted among God's friends, you are in the elite of the elite of the elite of the most godly who have ever walked the face of God of the earth. He is not our buddy in the sky. He is our Lord. Others might say something like this. We have lots of names for God. It just depends on what culture. Maybe some call him Allah. Some call him Buddha, which technically actually isn't even a God. Some call him Shiva. We just happen to call him God. All the same being but if you read those books that describe these individuals, these false gods, they're nothing like the God of Scripture. When you and I make a mental Ill image in our mind and we say things like, I like to think of God as, and we just spout one or two characteristics that we kind of enjoy, That's idolatry, and actually it suggests that we think we are the center of the universe rather than God. In this regard, I think of an event that took place a number of years ago. I'll tell you the year in a few moments. Some of you who are baseball fans know the moniker Jolton Joe, or the Yankee Clipper. That's Joe DiMaggio. For you Brewer fans, congratulations. You're going to the playoffs. Us Yankee fans, I think, are going home this year. But Joe DiMaggio was a Yankee. He was a center fielder, and he was a really good one. He was a 13-time All-Star. He got nine rings. You have to be a Yankee to get nine rings. No other team gets nine rings. He was a three-time MVP. He had a lifetime batting average of .325 he hit 361 home runs. He was a two-time home run champion, a two-time batting champion, a two-time RBI champion, and in 1941, he hit in 56 consecutive games, still a record to this day. A great player. When World War II came, someone thought he was too important to send very far in the Pacific, and certainly not to Europe, they sent him to Hawaii. And for the United States Air Force, he played baseball until the end of the war. And so in 1945, he went back to New York. He was to play in the very next game. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to sneak in the Yankee Stadium. I'm going to go up on the mezzanine deck. And I'm going to take little Joe Jr., my four-year-old. And and we're going to watch a game because tomorrow I have to play. And so they snuck in. But if you're Joe DiMaggio in Yankee Stadium, you don't get away with it. And the crowd soon realized he was there and they began to chant, Joe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Joe, 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 Joe DiMaggio. And he's all embarrassed and he looked at Joe Jr. to see if his four-year-old has heard it and he has, and he smiled and the four-year-old said, Daddy, they all know my name. (laughs) He believes that he is the center of the universe. And when we create a mental or physical image of God, we do so creating a user-friendly God as though we are the center of the universe, but God is. Let me read out of Exodus 20. Let's read verses four to six. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands... I think that's probably Hebrew parallelism. So it's thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandment. Now, let me set the scene from Exodus 20 all the way to Exodus 34. God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses gathers the people together and he reads to them the Ten Commandments. And then according to scripture, he rereads the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other God beside me and thou shalt not make a graven image, whether in heaven or on earth or in the waters under the earth. You can have no graven image. So all of the commandments are read, all of the covenant documents are read and the only thing that is repeated are the first two commandments. And I've got to ask myself why? Why just those two commandments? And it may surprise you, it surprised me. I would love to know how I would have answered the question I'm about to ask you, which you're going to get right because you know what sermon I'm preaching. But the question is this, of all the prohibitions in scripture, what is the number one prohibition mentioned? It turns out to be idolatry. I'd love to tell you I would have guessed that right. I have no idea what I would have guessed. You probably would have guessed it right. I was unsure. I think the 16th century reformer, John Calvin, is right when he said that our hearts are idle factories. We are constantly creating God either physically with human hands or mentally trying to create who this God is. So Moses gets all the covenant people together. He reads all the covenant documents. He rereads the first two commandments. And then we read that he makes an altar. And he makes the altar out of 12 stones because there's 12 tribes at that point of Israel. And he sacrifices some bulls on the altar. And then it gets kind of gruesome. Cuz he takes the blood And he shakes it over all the people. And it's a smelly, sticky, disgusting mess. It's meant to impress upon each person there that God hates idolatry. Don't forget this day. And you remember how the people respond. They say, we will obey all that God has commanded, all that you said, we will obey. And then the text tells us that Moses ascends Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. He's in Egypt. He goes up on the mountain and he's there for 40 days. And you remember what's going on down below. The people are stiff necked and they're kind of upset. And they're like, Moses gets to commune with God. We don't even see him. And they go to the high priest, who is Aaron, Moses' his brother. And they say, give us a visible God. And Aaron takes their jewelry and he melts it and he fashions it into a calf. Now this is what's critical. I'll read it to you in a moment. But this is what you gotta know. He did not recreate any God from the Egyptian pantheon from which they had just escaped. None of them. He did not recreate any God that we know of in the Canaanite lands that they had just conquered not any of them he sought to create an image of the one true god that they might worship the one true god let me read exodus 32 4 to 6 and he Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and they said these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The last time we heard that, those were the words of God about himself. They're trying to create an image of the one true God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to the one true God. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. In other words, They have created an artistic representation, not of any false God, of the one true God. And you remember God says to Moses, you got a mess down there. Go back down and Moses goes back down and he sees what they have done and he's holding the only piece of scripture, the 10 commandments that God carves with his own hands and he smashes it to the ground. He says, what have you done? Do you not understand that this is idolatry? You can't take anything of the creation and represent the creator with it. Impossible. No piece of art. No artifact. No relic. You cannot bow before him. You cannot pray to him. You cannot do that. And so he burns. He burns their idol. And then he smashes it into pieces. And he takes all the little flecks of gold and he puts it in water and he makes the people drink the water with a flecks of gold that they might never forget that God hates idolatry. God hates idolatry. In fact, look at verse four. No image is acceptable in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That kind of covers it all. Absolutely no image, no art piece, no artifact, no relic, nothing that is created is worthy of us praying before, bowing before, nothing. Sometimes I have the privilege of going to Israel And when I go there, I take whatever group I'm with. We go down the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. And we go through the stations of the cross. It's actually very moving. And we get to the church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is the authentic site of Golgotha. It's also the burial site of Jesus. It's authentic. I don't have time to prove it to you today, but I can historically tell you very easily why those are authentic sites and you walk in and if you go right, you go up the stairs and, and you can actually reach under the altar and touch a stone of Golgotha. Or if you go to the left, you kind of meander around and there's a line and, and you might have the opportunity to go into the, the burial cave. And we have great reason to believe it's the authentic cave where Christ was. Or, or if you go straight. You see, as soon as you walk in, you see it my memory tells me it's, it's about eight feet tall or eight feet long and maybe about three or four feet wide, something like that, like a piece of plywood, but actually a little bit narrow and a little bit longer than that. And, and all these pilgrims come and pilgrims, that is people who pay good money to be there. And they take their iPhone out and they put it on top and they take their wallet out and they put it on top and they take their scarves and they put it on top. And, And do you know what they're doing? They want the power in this granite rock to impact their phone and their wallet and their scarf. What is it? It's called the stone of unction, which means anointing. I don't know if it's authentic or not. It is very early if it's not authentic. And it's where they took Jesus' body off of the cross and they laid it down and they wrapped him in clothes with 70 pounds of spices. That's the stone of unction. It's there. Again, I can't tell you for sure that is authentic. I can tell you it's very early if it's not authentic. And it's part of the creation, it's not the creator, it has no power. None. It's a glorified four-leaf clother or a rabbit's foot or knocking on wood or going after a horoscope or a sign of the zodiac. It's placing confidence in the creation rather than the creator. All of what I just said is idolatry. It's all idolatry. And the second commandment commands us against idolatry. In fact, idolatry is going to play a major role in the end times. If you read through that seven-year tribulation period from Revelation 6 to 18, and you read about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, you have this antichrist, also called the beast, the man of lawlessness, the little horn, the same one, a human that is empowered by Satan, and in a rebuilt third temple up on the Temple Mount, he will set up a decoy, an icon, an image of himself, and all of humanity. Revelation 13 15 to 18, all of humanity will bow before it. That's idolatry. And to this, God tells us in verse five, he is jealous. For us. Now I don't know what you think of when you read the word jealous. I think of a little person. I think of somebody who's angry, who is possessive in a negative way. It's not a good word. It's a pejorative word in English, right? We don't want to be around someone who's jealous. But kana is not being used that way. It's, it's being used of perhaps a A husband and wife who guard the relationship one with another. They have an exclusive relationship. They have a relationship that's growing. They have a relationship that is to be vibrant. They're investing in it. And think about this. The creator, the sustainer, if you know Jesus, the redeemer in your life is jealous for an intimate relationship with you. He wants to be the priority in your life and in mine. He's jealous for us. And any piece of artwork, any relic, any piece of artifact that people bow before is an affront to the relationship he wants just between us. No creation needed. Creator and us to be the priority. Think about priority for a minute. If you're a shopaholic, your priority is probably to shop, right? And I'm probably not gonna hear from your mouth, do I gotta go into another store? Boring. If you're a brewer fan, it's your year and i happen to have two free world series tickets game 7 and i say to you cuz you are a brewer fan it's free for the taking and you say ah, i think i'd rather stay at home not that interested it won't take seven, Joe. you'll t- what it won't take 7 games it won't take 7 <laughs> that's why i'm giving it away man <laughs> i'd sell it if it was going to 7 if you're a grandparent and you get to see your grandchild once a month for one hour, are you going to say, ah, that's when Jeopardy's on. Can't, can't make that one hour. No, it's your priority. And that's what God desires. He understands that it takes discipline to be in devotions and prayer. It's hard work. It's discipline. But the longer you and I do it, the more we say, I really need that in my life. It's discipline. Sometimes to get out of bed and and make church a priority. It's hard work. And yet if we do it long enough, we say, you know, this is necessary in my life. Or maybe we say, you know, I'm actually kind of shy and sharing the gospel is difficult for me, but I am just bubbling over with excitement for this God and and I can't help but tell others what God has done in my life. That's what he's looking for. He wants to be the priority in your life and in mine. He's a jealous God. Let me reread part of verse five and verse six again. God is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. I think the first time you and I read that, it kind of strikes us as unfair. We say, okay, we have this disobedient, arrogant father, and because he rejects God, his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and potentially his great-great-great-grandchildren are all going to be afflicted. But I'm not sure that's the right way to read the text. It is a grammatical way to read it. Another grammatical way to read it is that this father has disdain for God And his children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren also hate God. And so the iniquity God pours on the father, he will also pour on the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren on. In fact, I'm fairly sure that's the right way to read it. Because listen to what Ezekiel tells us. In Ezekiel 18.20, this is very encouraging. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You see, I think the text is telling us this. If you're a father that is disinterested in the Lord, the chances are greatly increased that your kids are gonna be even more disinterested and your grandkids even more disinterested and the iniquity God pours on you will end up on your children and your grandchildren on down. But, but if you have break in, broken the cycle and some of you have, Some of you come from families that are disinterested and angry towards the Lord. But by God's grace, through faith in Christ, you have broken the cycle. Ezekiel tells you you that the iniquity passed from your father will not pass on to you. And in fact, the text tells us if we live a righteous life and we stay living a righteous life to the end of our life, we will potentially impact the next thousand generations for the kingdom. That's the grace of God. And so some of you have broken the cycle and praise the Lord. And now we need to make sure that we are living for the Lord to create a new cycle pursuing God. That's what the text is talking about. And verse six says that God will shower grace if we break that cycle for even a 1,000 generations. Well, I wanna conclude with a few thoughts. First, we need to avoid idolatry. We need to understand the difference between artwork and artifacts and archeological sites and worshiping creation. For instance, Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris, both before and after it burned Claims that it has the crown of Christ. I don't know if they do. I've only been there once. They didn't have it on display. I couldn't have authenticated it anyway. I don't have those qualifications. But I would have looked at it. I would have stood in line to see it. But I wouldn't have prayed to it. I wouldn't bow before it. The Vatican claims somewhere between 18 and 20 little pieces of the cross. I think that's legitimate, I think they have it. In fact, I believe that the Crusaders in the 11th to 13th century actually had enough wood of the original cross to make another cross which was lost to Islam. I would go see these things if they were ever on display, why would I not? Years ago when Milwaukee had pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I went down there. I've seen them many times in Israel, but I don't pray to them. I don't bow to them. If I were to see the Holy Grail, the supposed cup that Jesus had in the Last Supper, it's got to be there. Michelangelo painted it. But if you go to the Holy Grail, I mean, since 1437, the Valencia Cathedral in Spain claims to have it. I go see it. Actually, if you can't get to Spain, you just get to Italy. It's claimed there as well. And then there's a third one. I love this. A pub in Ireland has the Holy Grail. If you'll pay double for your pint, you can drink it. No, I made that part up. (laughs) But I'd go see these things. St. Anthony's in Pittsburgh has 5,000 relics. Some of them are real and some are silly. Uh, I think they have one of the index fingers of John the Baptist. We have 26 of them, by the way. You know, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had to be pointing. So we got 26 of these bad boys. That's the miracle of the loaves and the fish. But I think they have some real relics. And we can see them. We can go to archaeology. We can go to a beautiful art museum. We can be moved in our hearts, but we worship the creator, never the creation. Second, we need to make sure that we understand who God is as scripture describes God, the 66 books. There are many attributes, characteristics of God, and it is inappropriate To say, I like to think of God as, and then we have a user-friendly God. God is all of the characteristics. If there's a characteristic of God that is more so God than anything else, it's his holiness. Because it's the only one lifted to the third degree, both in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 5. He is called holy, holy, holy but he's a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of justice and a God of righteous wrath. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He is transcendent. He is beyond us and he is imminent. He is available to us. He is unchanging. He is a God that has a seity. He is independent from us. All of these attributes are needed as we try and figure out who this God is. And the only source of it is scripture as we mine the 66 books and learn about this God. The third thing I wanna walk away from the text is this. There's something far more important for me to pass on to my kids and grandkids than a will. I I have a will. If you have anything, you probably ought to have a will. I think it's a good idea. But that's not the most important thing to pass on. We want to pass on our faith. We want to pass on a vibrant relationship with the Lord. And sometimes we get this idea that when the kids leave the home, we don't have to be as engaged in the things of God as we once were. We kind of did the God thing with them, and now they're out of the home. They're still watching they still know. And they want to see, is this faith alive in your 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 100 or however long the Lord gives you on this earth? That's what we want to pass on to the next generation. And finally, and initially, this may be surprising, but God does allow for one image to be made into his likeness. Do you know what that one image is? You and me. Isn't that Genesis 1:27? And he made us in the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them into his image, into his likeness. Paul would say be imitators of me, what? As I imitate Christ. The one thing that he allows to imitate his image. Is us. Not that we would worship one another, obviously not, but that we incrementally become more and more and more like Christ. At the fall, Romans 5 12, when Adam disobeyed God, he was our head, he represented us, we too fell. But the more we come in walking with Christ, the more we move down the path of sanctification, the more like Jesus we ought to be. And that's what we wanna walk away from. We should never worship any part of the creation. We can involve ourselves in archeology span and art. We can be moved by it. We will never bow before it. We will never pray to it. We cannot have a mental vision of what God ought to be. We need to search the scripture to discover who he is and worship him alone. And as we seek to worship him, we seek to become more and more like him. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the first two commandments that remind us to have no other God beside you and to pursue you as you truly are, not to make a mental image that is so much less or a physical image that is so much less than who you are. Help us to not be satisfied with our creations, empty, worthless creations, but rather worship you, the creator, described in scripture. Let us pursue that relationship with you as the priority And praise you, Lord, that you would pursue us. We love you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.